Good morning, Alaska, and welcome to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Prentice Pemberton. Early childhood experiences can have a major impact on the physical and emotional development of children. For children who suffer from childhood abuse, the consequences can be significant. These children often struggle with attention problems, depression, anxiety, and behavioral disorders. In recognition of April being Child Abuse Prevention Month, today's program will focus on what can be done to prevent child abuse before it happens and what we can do to help children who have experienced abuse in their lives. Joining me today to discuss this issue are Dan Bigley and Josh Geary from Denali Family Services. Um, Josh is the uh, Director of Therapeutic Foster Care Services, and Dan Bigley is the CEO and President for Denali Family Services. Welcome to the program. I appreciate you both for taking the time to join me today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's good to be here. Okay, uh, I want to take a second to remind listeners we appreciate any uh, listener participation. So if you have a question for my guests or a comment about today's topic, there are three ways you can connect with us. If you're in the Anchorage area, our phone number is 907-550-8433. If you're listening to us outside of Anchorage, you can reach us toll-free at one 888 5752. And the last way to join is to email your questions to line1 at alaskapublic.org. You got to spell out line1, L I N E O N E, or we will not get it. So if you get those questions in, uh, we will get them on the air uh, as time allows. And please don't wait until the last 10 minutes of the show because that I get a lot of calls and, and emails that come in that I unfortunately don't get to um, get to because they're running out of time. So, all right. Um, let's start off uh, with you, Dan. Can uh, you give us a little bit of your background, what your role is, uh, exactly what a CEO and president does at Denali Family Services, um, and what kind of led you into this line of work? Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I got into behavioral health um, here in Alaska, uh, working for, at the time, Alaska Children's Services uh, back in 2003. Um, you know, started then at Denali Family Services in 2009 as a, as a clinician, a therapist working with uh, youth, um, helping them overcome challenges in their life and, and the effects and lasting impacts of adverse childhood experiences or trauma. Um, and then spent actually some time in, in Josh's role as the Director of Therapeutic Foster Care Services. Uh, spent about eight years as a clinical director overseeing all of our therapy services. Um, and just started in January as the President CEO. So, and really as far as what got me into the work, you know, from, a, from the time of being a young person, I used to volunteer a lot of time with my mom kind of growing up and, and always just kind of had a sense that I wanted to be in the helping professions. Um, you know, as far as what, what would bring uh, me a sense of purpose in my life uh, and, and, you know, some meaning. On a deeper level, it was helping people. It was making a difference in the world in, in some small way. And so that's, that's always been kind of... Uh, you know, my why as far as like what drives me every morning when I get out of bed. 
All right, uh, Josh, kind of the same question, background, what you're doing now and, and why you're doing it. Sure. Yeah, so I've, I've been with uh, Denali Family Services pretty much my entire adult life. Um, I've uh, worked in a variety of departments over here in a variety of roles. I started out uh, working with youth in schools, um, the behavioral health um, associate uh, uh, role, working with youth directly. Um, and then as I got my degree and uh, got a little bit more professional experience, I started working therapeutic foster care. And recently, in the last year, I took over the role as the foster care director. Um, so I've really, really enjoyed working with Denali Family Services and the variety of roles that I've served in. Um, and as a therapeutic foster care director, I kind of oversee the program. Uh, we've really been, um, you know, trying to develop our program and, and get more foster parents on, therapeutic foster homes licensed to support the youth in Alaska. So that's kind of our main initiative right now. But outside of that, we oversee the homes and make sure that they're meeting compliance and safety, safety compliance overall, um, and then place youth in their homes and kind of oversee that process. Um, but overall, what led me to this line of work is, um, you know, I kind of grew up in an experience where I didn't have a lot of uh, good male role models in my life. And um, I was kind of uh, struck by that, you know, going through school, not knowing what I wanted to do and, and realize, like, I could make a difference. Um, and I started working in domestic violence and sexual assault in a, in a shelter, and I was working with youth who were displaced because of uh, DVSA. And, uh, you know, that was, that was kind of a, uh, a turning point for me, and I realized, you know, that the biggest impact you can make in this, in this field is with youth. You know, I think that is the, the, the point where you can see the most change in their life. Um, so I really, really found that to be rewarding for me. And I kind of just tried different things and found my way into therapeutic foster care. And I feel like, uh, yeah, that's the best way to make a difference in, in children's lives in the state of Alaska. All right. That's a, um, I mean, that's a great point. I, uh, as a therapist, work across the spectrum from um, 10 years old all the way up into uh, later adulthood. And you're right, um, getting downstream and uh, early intervention is sort of the key. And, um, you know, we're, it is uh, Child Abuse Prevention Month, but I think most of this show, like today, is sort of evolving into, like, probably more of an intervention and what can be done once that happens. I mean, prevention is critical like we want to stop it before that's even the best case scenario but then early intervention um, before too much happens and people grow into adulthood with these sort of like ingrained attitudes about life and trust and bonding and all of that stuff so I have sort of a, a unique perspective on this because I was a therapeutic foster parent um, for many years uh, through the old Alaska Youth Initiative program when I worked at LifeQuest out in the valley um, and wraparound services. And so we're going to be talking about both of those things today. But, Dan, before we uh, – this is sort of not really relevant, but before today's – or today's topic, but uh, I think it's probably another topic for a different day. You've been on the show before um, talking about uh, uh, Beyond the Bear. And today, because you lost your sight – um, in that event. And today, before the show, we were listening to um, some of the, or I was talking to you about some of the notes I sent, and I was listening, and you were listening to the notes at hyperspeed. And I thought, <laughs> does I could not understand what the words were. Have you, Has your, like, 
I don't know, hearing just evolved to this place where you can listen to super fast <laughs> words? Because that was remarkable. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, I guess the way that, that I think about it and, and help others understand, like when I'm listening to my computer um, as I work, uh, is, you know, most people read at speeds that exceed the rate of speech. And so, um, you know, essentially in order to be efficient and, and effective, as, you know, in the workplace, um, you know, it's just about kind of reprogramming those neural networks to process uh, spoken information at the same rate of which I would read. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of an explanation there, but that, <laughs> hopefully that helps make sense. I had, yeah, I had no idea what was going on for a minute. And then I was like, oh yeah, his, his hearing is probably, or your ability to listen is probably, uh, very much like in, I don't know, hyper tuned. So that was just something I was curious about. All right. So child abuse prevention month. And I, I want to start off with like, as parents, we're all very concerned. I think um, most parents are very concerned about protecting their children from being harmed by others. And um, most kids are hurt by people that they know, either a family member, a teacher, a coach, a relative. That's what the statistics provide. And so if we're talking to our own children, let's just start off there for parents who are listening. How do we talk to our kids um, to help them understand how to reach out because a six-year-old, seven-year-old um, has a difficult time if someone is coercing them or manipulating them? How might we help our kids um, reach out and talk to us about that even under, you know, threats or promises or like how do we, it's a delicate conversation to have with your kids without scaring them. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, that is the balance of strike. I mean, we talk about prevention, I think, as a parent um, or as, you know, any professional, um, you know, working with, with children, you know, having those conversations and starting those conversations at a young age um, is, is really a critical piece of prevention. And, you know, one of the things that strikes me the most um, about this is like teaching kids to trust their instinct. Uh, like we all kind of are born with this little radar inside um, and we have a sense of when something just doesn't feel quite right, uh, when something's off, um, if an adult is behaving or acting in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable and, and really just teaching them to, to trust that inner feeling and, and to immediately um, go to a trusted adult for help, come talk to their parents. Also, just kind of teaching them that, hey, you can talk to us about anything. Somebody might try to tell you that you can't. They might threaten you. They might scare you, um, tell you that awful things will happen, but always come to us, always talk to us. And just kind of starting those conversations at a young age is really important. You know, but like you said, we also don't want to teach kids that people can't be trusted, that the world's not a safe place. Um, and so it's sort of this balance of uh, really giving them a sense of agency, um, a sense that they have the tools and skills necessary to to keep themselves safe and and really just to trust their own instincts when it comes to that type of thing, and always to 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 talk to adults that they that they know and trust. Yeah, I think identifying those adults that are there that they can tell anything to, and those I think adults should be very clear. I mean, it should be a clear list of people that that you really know and want your kids to be able to, to 
rely on. And to, I mean, there may be other adults that they trust who end up as perpetrators. And this is particularly true of sexual abuse. And I think that is that is something that grooming and it's our special secret and really talking to your kids about what's okay, what's not okay with adults um, from an early age, uh, I think is, is critical. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So Denali Family Services, let's talk about two things and maybe, uh, Maybe, Dan, you can talk a little bit about what it is. What's the history of Denali Family Services, and who do you serve um, in the state? And then, Josh, I want to ask you about specifically about the therapeutic foster care program and how that's different from um, traditional foster care. So let's start with you, Dan. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned earlier uh, the A. Uh, AYI, the uh, Alaska Youth Initiative, which uh, I think later became the uh, Bring the, the Kids Home. And both of these were sort of efforts to really focus on how do we um, how do we serve Alaskan children in Alaskan communities? Because, you know, Alaska has always struggled with having the resources um, needed to provide uh, the mental health and behavioral health services um, to the kids in the state. And so we've had a lot of kids at different times receiving services at out-of-state residential treatment programs, um, obviously even internally at acute psychiatric hospitalization uh, hospitals. And so, you know, it's, a lot of those initiatives were about building the community's capacity to meet the needs of kids and families in, in their communities. And um, it's a big challenge. You know, Alaska is a big state and, um, yeah, sort of lots of challenges associated with, uh, you know, geographics and and what have you. And so um, Denali Family Services was formed back in the 90s really as a, a, a re in response to some of those initiatives being taken. Um, it was initially called Alternatives and, you know, really indicating um, our vision as being an alternative to out-of-state residential treatment or, or higher levels of care. And so kind of our mission uh, to provide, you know, supports to, to kids and families in a very individualized way uh, was always geared towards keeping kids uh, in a community setting where they can, um, you know, maintain ties to, to their natural supports, their families, their schools, uh, their communities, and we can really work to help support their level of functioning, help support stability in those natural environments as opposed to um, you know, working on those things in a in a really sort of contrived setting, which is like residential treatment or something like that. Yeah. All right. If uh, if you're just tuning in, uh, my guests today are Dan Bigley and Josh Geary from Denali Family Services. Um, Josh is the director of therapeutic foster care, and Dan is the president and CEO. Today we are talking prevention and intervention of child abuse. If you have a question for my guests, our phone numbers in Anchorage, 907-550-8433, toll-free, 188-353-5752. And the last way to get your questions on the air is to email us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. All right, Josh, uh, therapeutic foster care. Can you talk a little bit about your program, what that is, who it serves, um, and how it's different from typical foster care? Sure. Yeah. 
So, I mean, it really does combine some of the traditional elements of traditional foster care, um, you know, providing a safe home, basic needs, love and care, uh, but it also provides a structured environment uh, where um, our foster parents do use, like, clinically uh, designed interventions to assist youth through their treatment plans. Um, so you're working, so our foster parents are working kind of one-on-one -on -one in collaboration with our our treatment teams to our wrap service model. Um, so these include clinicians, case managers, uh, behavioral health associates, um, to really kind of design, you know, a program within the home that meets the needs of these youth with, you know, a little bit more challenging behaviors. Um, so it's really just an opportunity for these youth to not only receive care um, at the level that they do in traditional foster care, but also, you know, in this environment that really helps them process some of their trauma. Um, and, you know, so we, we do provide a lot of oversight and training to our foster parents. Um, so there's additional training requirements. Uh, we also do have more professional expectations of our foster homes. Um, so one of, the, one of the benefits of that is that we do reimburse our homes at a professional rate. Um, but there's a lot of misconceptions overall on what therapeutic foster care is. Um, you know, we, we do, it's a, it's, a very, it's a more intensive type of treatment, uh, type of care for, for these types of youth. Um, and, you know, it might look like a lot of different things. I think, you know, a lot of people think that it's, it could be a, a big commitment and usually is a really big commitment for people to make, but it doesn't have to be. You know, we do provide respite services, which is essentially a break uh, for, for even parents in the community or our own foster parents. Um, so we have homes that just typically provide, you know, a, a short period of time where the youth can get a break from their full-time home or their biological parent. Um, and they can also, um, you know, develop relationships with other parents. And that usually looks like, you know, uh, the weekends, they go to a different home on the weekends. So really our respite providers are providing like part-time foster care services to youth. Um, and that's a really beneficial service that we provide. And so it doesn't always have to look like you're providing care 24-7 for a youth. There's a lot of different ways that we really use, utilize our foster parents to support children and support the community. Yeah. And if I might, Princess, real quick, too, I think, you know, going back to the question of who we're serving, I think that's pretty important to understanding the role of foster, therapeutic foster care in the community. You know, when you think about, you know, childhood abuse, um, you know, and we know that that can occur both inside of a, a child's family system, you know, right. and, it, and it can occur outside of it. Um, but the impacts of what happens when a child is abused within the context of their family of their family system itself um, are can are quite dramatic and quite different. It's oftentimes referred to as something called developmental trauma, where when trauma occurs while a young child is developing repeatedly over time by the very people who are supposed to be there to be attuned to their needs, meet their needs, help them learn how to navigate relationships and navigate the world help them internalize a sense of safety and a sense of agency and competency in the world, you know, it, it can be quite, uh, it can have a huge impact on the developing brain. And so um, literally the physiology of the brain and the neural networks um, are more geared, they develop in such a way that they're more geared towards survival and constantly scanning the environment looking for threats than they are towards solving more advanced life problems and navigating ch more advanced challenges in the environment um, through through different parts of the brain, you know, using executive functioning. And so 
literally part of the work of the therapeutic intervention that our therapeutic foster care uh, parents are providing um, is first and foremost helping them internalize a sense of safety, um, a sense that a caregiver can respond in a consistent and predictable way and that they can get their needs met within the context of that relationship. Um, that's sort of the, the first and primary function of what we're doing. And so these parents are working closely with treatment teams and with trained therapists um, to help them understand behavior through those lenses of developmental trauma and attachment relationships. Um, so they get a lot of support in the process of working with kids that really do need kind of a lot of help um, to deal with these challenges. Okay. It's, um, yeah, the, we want to, we're kind of at our first break here, so we're going to go ahead and take that. And when we come back, I do want to delve more into, like, the impacts of early childhood abuse um, and long-term and some of the ACEs study. And so we'll, we'll go into a little bit of that and explaining what that means for folks who might not be familiar um, and what the short and long-term consequences are of child abuse and why it's so important to intervene, well, to prevent and to intervene early. But if you're just tuning in today, my guests are Dan Bigley and Josh Geary from Denali Family Services. Josh is the Director of Therapeutic Foster Care, and Dan is the President and CEO. If you have a question for us or a comment about today's topic, please give us a call or send us an email. Our Anchorage phone number is 907-550-8433. Outside of Anchorage, you can reach us toll-free at 1-888-353-5752. And the last way to get your question to us is to email us at line1-alaskapublic.org. After this short, short break, we'll continue our conversation about child abuse. I'm Prentice Pemberton. You're listening to Line 1, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. Line One, your health connection comes to you from Alaska Public Media and is made possible with support from Alaska Pipeline Service Company, maintaining and operating the 800-mile Trans-Alaska Oil Pipeline since 1977, from Prudhoe Bay to the Port of Valdez. The Alaska State Library Talking Book Center has audiobooks and more for children and adults who are unable to read standard print. Learn more at talkingbooks.alaska.gov. This message sponsored by the Alaska Library Network. Welcome back to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Prentice Pemberton. If you're just joining us, my guests today are Dan Bigley and Josh Geary from Denali Family Services. We are discussing the impacts of child abuse and how to help. If you have a question for us today or a comment about our topic, please give us a call or send us an email. Our email is line one at alaskapublic.org. Our Anchorage phone number is five is 907-550-8433. And toll free, our number is 
0.5252. Okay, I have a, an email I want to read. Um, it says, ha, it's got two questions, really. Has there been an increase or a decrease in childhood abuse in recent years? What do you think is driving that? And as a foster kid myself, I have seen other foster kids perpetuating the abuse they see uh, on the other kids. What do you do to help keep kids and foster parents safe in some of these homes? So maybe, Dan, you can uh, speak to the, the first part. Uh, recent years would, I, I guess, include the pandemic. That's recent years. And, and I think we, um, we've seen increases across the board in domestic violence, uh, addiction uh, problems, and childhood abuse. So, Dan, maybe you, do you know any, have an answer for that one? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think across the system, you know, what we're hearing is that you know, the pandemic obviously was really, really challenging on people for a, a number of different reasons. Um, obviously, the, you know, isolation is never a good thing for um, mental health um, or substance uh, use or misuse issues. Um, and so, you know, what happens when you have you know, families quarantined in, in a, a COVID bubble uh, where there may be, you know, increased uh, risk of uh, overusing substances, um, you know, and, you know, then you throw into there the challenges of, you know, Zoom school on parents and things like that. And I think, um, yeah, it, I think it, it definitely, but, you know, was a, a really challenging time for, for kids and for families. And then on top of that, kids were less connected to their friends, less connected to their social networks. And so I think at the same time, um, you know, there was probably an under-reporting um, of incidents of, of child abuse. And so because families were just so isolated during that time. So I think the pandemic definitely um, provided, you know, or sort of like increased the risk factors uh, probably by several fold. Um, yeah, it's really interesting because there probably was a uh, an underreporting. It's like you look at um, divorce statistics, and there were less divorces filed early in in the pandemic. But then there was this flood of divorces after. Like people weren't going out and you know getting lawyers, and and so I think that isolation you talk about and the financial stresses on families. Um, right losing jobs and it, it disproportionately impacted um, lower age, you know, earners and, and people who, yeah, like you said, they had their kids at home 24-7. Everybody's isolated uh, in, in these small bubbles, um, lots of stressors. And I know anecdotally across the board, uh, mental health issues were through the roof. People can't find appointments with therapists or psychiatrists these days. Um, and then the political environment, um, war. I mean, there are all right. just untold stressors right now on our community, um, which trickles down to our children. And I think, um, yeah. So that's a that's a great question. So to Josh, to Amber's question about um, some of these homes can have acting out children and yeah. um, lots of aggression and what is done to keep other children in the home safe and, and to protect foster parents. I was assaulted several times as a therapeutic foster parent. Um, 
and was trained to deal with that. And, you know, there was a, a procedure. But what are you all doing um, to make those areas, those homes safe? Yeah, yeah. And so we do actually a lot. I mean, really um, what it comes down to is we fully disclose, you know, all the information we can gather to our home to make a their de- determination whether or not it is a good fit for them. So they do have a choice in the youth that come into their home. Uh, we never, you know, force youth on any home. Um, part of the process is also looking at the other youth in the home, their behaviors, their presenting behaviors. So every every placement decision is, is clinically guided. Uh, so there's not a lot of overlap of behaviors that might, um, you know, impact one another. That's one of the things we're always looking at. So if there are safety issues, that comes into consideration when we're actually placing youth into a new home. Um, so, and then, and then another piece of that is that we really try to limit the amount of youth in the home. So if there's a really, you know, a highly um, challenging youth in a single home, that, that foster parent might only have that youth. Um, so we try to, try to limit some of those safety risks to uh, other youth in the foster homes. Um, is that, and then when we talk about, um, you know, safety for our own parents, you know, we provide a lot of trainings. We do have a crisis line that they can call. Um, they have a lot of, um, you know, kind of clinical guidance as well. So talking about interventions uh, and how you can intervene in a safe way. And so I think that, that awareness does help a lot of times keep our, our parents safe. Um, so they really know what the standards are, what the procedures are in the case that they do experience something that might be might be a safety concern to them. Um, so really it's just, you know, pr- providing as much oversight as possible, as much screening as possible up front, um, as well as, you know, we do a lot of screening with our foster homes as they're coming on. So it's a pretty intensive process. So we're not just emergency licensing homes. Uh, we go through a lot of trainings prior to actually licensing the home. And at any time, we can really determine that maybe this isn't the best fit for our program and for our kids. All right. Uh, we have a phone call. Um, Kristen's been on hold for a while from Anchor Point. You're on line one. What's your question? Well, it's not so. Well, it's a statement and a question. Um, how, when uh, charges of sexual abuse or sexual harassment come up, especially from teenagers about certain adults, uh, the way sometimes they're handled. It gets public, and if it turns out that it wasn't true, it didn't happen, the person involved was just trying to ruin that adult, well, it's successful. They've ruined the adult. The adult has had to leave, has had to quit their job, and maybe just packed up the family and had to leave. Because once things like this become public, uh, even if it proves to be innocent, uh, the person is ruined, and I have no idea whatever happens to the young person who does it. I don't know if they're, like, put into some kind of psych- psychiatric treatment because uh, they could very well just do it again. And I know sexual assault is very serious, but there are uh, young people smart enough to use it as a weapon. All right. Uh, thank you for the call, and I think that is a... Um that's an interest. That's sort of a safety. Um, it brings up a safety concern for me, and and when I think about that, it it's very seldom are accusations false, right? And and looking at 
domestic violence and uh, sexual abuse allegations. They're they're rarely false, um, but the, it does happen. And Josh, what do you uh, and Dan, you can jump in here too, but how do you, as a therapeutic foster parent, parent I had kids in my home um, and it is that were often sexually abused. Um, it, there was uh, females that were, I would do respite for, like what are protections that are put in place to make sure that, that foster parents are, I guess, protected from allegations of either sexual abuse or physical abuse, right? Like kids know, I'm sure, that they can say, oh, he pushed me, he touched me, I didn't feel comfortable or safe. I mean, do you run across that very much, Josh? And and how is that handled? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, really what it comes down to is we, we talk to our parents about just communication. You know, communicate, over-communicate, talk to your talk to your licensing supervisor, talk to your treatment teams, um, you know, because that's the, that's the best way to protect yourself. If we have full insight into what is going on in the home, if you're being transparent with us, a lot of times you're protecting yourself. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's not the, you know, we, we tell our new, new parents that are coming on, everyone's really afraid of being investigated. Is that right. And it's, it's not the worst thing in the world, you know, it, it's the worst thing in the world if something is actually going on that you're trying to hide. But Correct. You know, it's part of the it's part of the system, and you know it's our job to keep children safe, and really look into any kind of instance of um, allegations. Um, so, you know, it, if if you're doing everything right, you're communicating, and and really our job is just to keep children safe. And if you make mistakes, um, it's not the end of the world. We work with you, we train you. Um, there's levels of mistakes though, and we have to take all of those seriously. Yeah, we're always going to listen to kids when they're uh, making any sort of allegation, obviously. Um, you know, I think that's one of the biggest things that people need to do is when kids are talking, we need to listen and we need to take them seriously. Um, but with that said, like Josh was talking about, we do a lot of um, training right from the very beginning uh, with our foster parents in advance of anything like that coming up to help them be more prepared should something like that come up. And, and like Josh said, it's really just about, you know, hey, if you can expect it and you have a plan and you have some training as far as how to handle yourself, um, it, should something like this come up for you, then, uh, you know, sort of preparedness is key and, and just, you know, going through the process is, is uh, help. it helps a lot. Yeah. It is a, um, I, you know, I think that was a, a great question to bring up if someone's considering being a foster parent. And as a foster parent for 13 years myself, I um, had one particular allegation against me um, with a young man who lived with me until he was 25. But when he was 13, there was an allegation. It was based on a medical procedure that had to be done at home. And he was talking about it at school, I guess, and it got reported. But um, everything had been communicated ahead of time. There was a doctor's note. There was documentation that this had to be done. So it was cleared up, in, you know, with one phone call. Um, that is the importance. And, and I tell foster parents who, you know, are worried about um, allegations to not be alone, to, like, make sure that you keep yourself you know, in public spaces that you have two parents available when something, you know, any sort of like medical thing is going on, that everything is documented 
it's just, as you mentioned, Josh, that communication is critical. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. So I have an email I just kind of want to read. It's about um, this very topic. And uh, then it's kind of got a question, which I think is pretty interesting. So for the past 34 years, I've been seeing various Alaskan providers about the childhood abuse and neglect I experienced starting from a very young age until I was a teenager. My deep gratitude goes to all those good men and women, the professionals and support staff. I am 65 and retired. I can only say that PTSD is the gift that keeps on giving. As I experienced severe re-traumatization in 2016, I'm better now, but I still wake up on mornings like today, have intrusive thoughts about what happened, criticizing myself, why can't you get over this? Um, she said, as uh, as Mr. Pemberton said on the air just a few minutes ago, I do have ingrained attitudes about life and trust and bonding. So I guess the question is, um, what are the two or three, she says, what are the two or three concepts that differ between therapy for children today and children like me back in the early 60s through the 70s? Uh, is it helpful to know things have gotten better? Uh, thank you all. So uh, are there differences, Dan, in what we're doing today and what we know versus what we knew in the 60s and 70s? Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think one of the biggest changes, you know, that have happened really in the past several decades and, and I think continues to happen is our understanding of neuroscience um, and the, the impact that um, our experiences in life actually have on our physiology in the brain. Um, and, yeah, so and, and in addition to that, just uh, the ways of which we know now how to intervene um, at different, in different ways across the lifespan uh, in ways that work for specific people. Like, and so, in other words, like if we're working with a young person, um, we might be intervening through play therapy, through family therapy, through parent-child, um, you know, interaction uh, therapy, uh, you know, there, and that might look very different for a youth who may be 16 and where we might be doing something more like trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy or uh, more traditional EMDR type of therapy. So I think uh, there's a lot more tools with a lot more research to support their efficacy. Um, that guide interventions across the lifespan uh, and with a lot more understanding of, you know, what it is that we're trying to change as far as the specific mechanisms in in our bodies. Um, Because, you know, one of the great um, discoveries as well is sort of like how trauma is stored in the body and manifests itself both physically, uh, emotionally, uh, behaviorally um, as well. And so, um, you know, through these understandings, we understand that while processing and talking about things can be helpful to some extent, um, there's also a need to address the, the trauma that's stored in the body. And we do that, you know, through what's called bottom-up therapies, uh, where we really have to, um, have to get people moving oftentimes and, and get people connected in rhythm, in relationship, um, to help internalize, you know, a, a sense of safety and kind of reconnect. Because the experience of trauma is ultimately a fear-based experience, you know. Oftentimes it manifests in anxiety um, or hypervigilance or this type of thing. 
and really, I think as humans, when we when we have a sense of well-being, it's it's in connection and sort of like, you know, we're, we're moving people from fear into a place of connection and or love, um, and so that's that's ultimately the experience that we're really trying to help people get to. And I think that's a much different understanding than the older sort of more traditional sense of oh, what we're actually trying to do is just desensitize uh, the anguish that comes with these memories. Right. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a complicated question and I really do, I appreciate the, uh, the email and I appreciate, um, the listener's experience and the work that she has done to overcome and to deal with this stuff. And I really liked uh, her comment about the ingrained attitudes of trust uh, and bonding because I think that's one of the the biggest impacts of early childhood abuse is that ability to like trust the world as a safe place and that sort of like constant scanning and anxiety that comes from you know, never knowing where um, the danger lies or when it's going to pop up. And our little young brains are sort of like wired in this this state of fear, um, which has a significant impact as we move into adulthoods and the attitudes that we hold. So, yeah. Um, yeah, 100%, Prentice. I mean, um, for some of our newer foster parents, you know, it's oftentimes referred to as like parenting in Oz because when you're parenting a traumatized child, it can oftentimes seem like some, it just never makes sense. Um, and so you'll have a kid who, you know, is having a birthday party or you'll have a, a family vacation at the beach and the youth may really be struggling emotionally, behaviorally, be completely dysregulated. And, and if, if, you're, if you don't have that sort of understanding of the impact of trauma, it's like, why is this child not having a good time? Like, here we are, it's his birthday, or, or we're at the beach, or whatever. Um, but the thing of it is, it's like, if if your worldview is that you're always sort of uh, focused on safety, and you're, you're in a state of fear all the time, it's hard to connect to the emotion of joy. It's hard to be present in the moment uh, when you're always looking around for where's that next danger going to come from. All right, if you're just joining us, my guests today are Dan Bigley and Josh Geary from Denali Family Services. Our topic today is the prevention and intervention of child abuse. If you have a question for my guests or a comment about today's topic, uh, please give us a call. When we come back from uh, a short break, I will give out uh, phone numbers and email. So... uh, I'm Prentice Pemberton, and you're listening to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. You're listening to Line One from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line One on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. As new COVID variants spread, vaccines can help protect you and your community from severe illness. A booster shot provides additional protection especially for those at higher risk. If you're 12 and older and it's been five months since your last Pfizer or Moderna dose, or two months since your Johnson & Johnson vaccine, you are now eligible for a booster. Learn more at covidvax.alaska.gov. This message sponsored by the Department of Health and Social Services. 
Welcome back to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I am your host, Prentice Pemberton. If you're just joining us, my guests today are Dan Bigley and Josh Geary from Denali Family Services. Josh is the Director of Therapeutic Foster Care, and Dan is the President and CEO. If you have a question for us today or a comment about our topic, please give us a call or send us an email. You can reach us in Anchorage at 907-550-8433 or call us toll-free at 1-888-353-5752. And the last way to participate is to email your questions to line1 at alaskapublic.org. I have two emails here that I want to get to. Uh, One is from Michael, and I want to address this one, and I don't don't think... uh, Maybe Josh and and Dan have an answer, but uh, it says, Hi, Prentice, you recently had a guest on the show who seemed to discount the effects of ACEs and said the research came from a monetary incentive. Your guests today have a different view. Could you please discuss? And what Michael is referring to is the show I did, oh, a month ago, several weeks ago, maybe, um, that was entitled The Trouble with Trauma. So if you want to learn more about that. And the premise was not that early childhood experiences do not have an impact on mental and and physical health, but that some the research is not, it's hard for me to explain real quickly, and I don't want to take up most of our time, but um, that there has been some sort of like fomenting or uh, taking, the research has been not fully proven that there is a cause and effect, right? There may be a correlation, but not necessarily causative, that people may be predisposed um, to some of these impacts. But right now for today's show and and what most of the uh, known world is working on is the fact that early adverse childhood experiences, which is the ACEs studies, um, have an impact on mental and emotional health of, of young humans. And there's a debate on what constitutes trauma, real trauma, complex PTSD versus um, PTSD. And you know, I mean, that is that is a conversation for a different day. So Dan, I don't know if you heard that show um, or if you know what I'm talking about, but it's uh, something you might want to look into. And um, I encourage people, if they have questions, to go back and listen to that program. But um, at any rate, I have seen the anecdotal evidence of many young people uh, going through early experiences of abuse and having significant problems. And so the whether it's causative or a correlation, for the purpose of today's conversation, we are saying that there's an impact and child abuse prevention is a good thing. Correct, Dan? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And the impact is very real. Uh, like I said, there's always a need for, for more research uh, to be done in, in this area and in many other areas because there, we could also have an entire show about resiliency, right, and the factors that contribute uh, to resiliency. Um, there's also a whole other show potentially on post-traumatic growth, which is that actually many people who do experience trauma uh, can experience growth through their experiences and go on to live very meaningful and successful uh, lives. And and ultimately, like it's our hope and goal that we can help um, help 
victims or survivors, I should say, of uh, childhood abuse uh, sort of develop that resiliency and go on to experience that post-traumatic growth. And so uh, by no means are we trying to say that sort of the experience would, would render somebody, um, you know, sort of damaged for life. Right. As, yeah. As one of your callers did mention, though, that, you know, the impacts are there. Um, but but very much so, you can go on um, and learn to to live with it and and thrive with it and and be very successful in many ways in life. So yeah, I think it's as you said, it's always worth looking more at research and and questioning what we know, which is what much of that program was about. Was how can we continue to think critically and always go back and and do better in understanding. Um, thing. So I, I do appreciate the question, Michael, and you, you bringing it up because I figured that uh, might be on the minds of some folks. So, uh, yeah, it is about offering different, you know, opinions and, and really having an open mind here online one to look at, at other ways of thinking about things. But um, so I want to go to a caller in Anchorage. We have John. Uh, you have a question or a comment for us today on line one? John is not there. Okay. No comment there. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Maybe John will get back with us. Um, all right. So working theory, what are some of the impacts um, of childhood abuse? Uh, both like what do we see kids manifesting and later in adult life, like physical and emotionally um, what are some of the, the symptoms that we see for people who go through these experiences? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a pretty wide range um, uh, of impact, um, but certainly within children, having a lot of emotional dysregulation, affect dysregulation um, could be one of them, sort of a hypervigilance, uh, you know, um, where they might have an increased startle response, might be sort of preoccupied or focused on um, on the environment, um, kind of sort of scanning for a possible threat. They might uh, misinterpret, um, you know, facial expressions uh, as potential risks um, to danger. Because again, like the parts of the brain that are most active um, can can fundamentally be rewired. Um, to to operate in this way. And so um, that might lead to poorer school performance due to difficulties in concentrating um, and focusing. And, you know, it's just important to understand, um, I think, you know, like, in that, that's a good example. It's like school performance, right? It's, it's like, well, how important and meaningful is, you know, whatever the subject matter is in school, if I'm more concerned about my physical or emotional safety? Um, so it, it, it's really just about, I guess, understanding the experience of someone who's experienced trauma um, that might be experiencing, like your caller said, intrusive memories, intrusive thoughts. Uh, they might have increased stress hormones like cortisol or adrenaline uh, pumping through their body at any given time. They might not be sleeping well and have significant disruptions in sleep. Um, you know, and, and so these are the types of, of symptoms, I guess, that um, our, our children might be coming to school with or to daycare with. 
And so then when presented uh, with something that they perceive as a threat, um, they might very quickly end up in sort of a, a fight, flight, or freeze response. Um, they might um, have behavioral disturbances, uh, which may be uh, misunderstood uh, by teachers or right. caregivers as just bad behavior or oppositional defiance or something. Um, and so, yeah, it's just really important to sort of keep an open mind and, and to really truly try to understand. And I think, you know, that's the shift. Like when somebody does become trauma-informed, the question shifts from, you know, what's wrong with this kid to what happened to this kid? What's wrong with this person to what what happened? Um, help us understand. So that's sort of the perspective that we um, try to help our parents and, and families that we work with uh, move towards. Yeah, it's really important to understand why a child is acting out and why they're struggling, why they're absent from school, why they're not paying attention, um, why they might be wetting their bed at night as a 10-year-old, um, why they might have stomach aches and, and headaches quite often before they go to a certain person's house. Or I mean, these are all warning signs. Um, that we need to be aware of and, and look for. Um, so John got back with us, it looks like. John, in Anchorage, you have a question or a comment for us today? Yes, I do, and, and thank you. I'm sorry, the phone disconnected right at the end of the air. Um, I, uh, it, I want to shift to a, a perspective of juvenile delinquency, where um, tradition has been to hold uh, children accountable. It's been one of the major themes for juvenile delinquency, and I think that common form that developed a lot recently, and uh, and I want to know if there's this uh, consistent to still hold the child accountable uh, when the child has had trauma, and maybe acting their actions may be a manifestation of that um, um, What do we do with this information uh, when considering delinquency? All right. We're having a, uh, a bad connection, but I I think I kind of understood the the basis of the question. It was kind of going in and out, but it really essentially was how do we, I mean, our childhood delinquency, is it linked to early childhood, um, you know, abuse? And, and then if so, how do we hold people accountable? And I think it's important to keep communities safe um, while at the same time treating people as, I mean, hurt people hurt people. That's one of the quotes I've kind of hung on to, and and most perpetrators or many perpetrators of violence or sexual violence um, were once victims. And I think it's so important to hold that in our hearts as we treat people who are angry and upset. Um, Dan, do you have a, a comment about that call, or did you understand it? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I concur with uh, with your thoughts. I mean, we certainly need to do what's necessary to keep uh, people safe and communities safe and, um, you know, certainly think that there's a, a need for that. And But it's also, I think, the other, the, the important piece there is, is like, I like that hurt people hurt people. Also, you know, I've heard it said that, uh, you know, especially in relation to kids, these aren't scary kids. These are scared kids. Mm hmm um, and so I, I think it's just important to um, think about to what extent are we 
uh, filling jails with people who need treatment, right? I mean, it's just, it, it can be said, same can be said for substance use uh, disorders. And um, and just to make sure that if treatment is what's indicated that the, the kids, whether they're incarcerated or not, um, are receiving good quality treatment, right? And so um, I, I just want to make sure that if, 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 it's a, if there's a belief that a child's behaviors may be caused or impacted by the experience of trauma, which I think is, is, a, is definitely a prevailing belief in many cases where kids are incarcerated, um, that to make sure that we're sort of able to provide the necessary care and, and treatment um, to help prevent uh, sort of reoffending, right, and, and help support successful reentry into communities. Yeah, I've heard it said that um, the Los Angeles County prison is perhaps the biggest mental health facility in the world um, and has a very high percentage of people who have experienced early childhood trauma. Um, so that's uh, that's an important thing to remember when we're working with people. But So I have an email. We're running out of time, but um, we wanted to know, somebody wants to know what resources are available for adults who experience abuse as children to get counseling or learn ways not to perpetuate the trauma. Um, do you have any thoughts, either one of you, about like what people can do to heal themselves so that they don't perpetuate this? Yeah, that's a really good good question and a great point because uh, certainly, um, you know, when we talk about child abuse, it's important to understand that oftentimes there is a cycle to this, that it's in, these, these uh, challenges can oftentimes be intergenerational, intergenerationally transmitted from one generation to the next. And so it is important to sort of focus on how do we disrupt uh, that cycle. Um, and, and, and also important to recognize that oftentimes it's uh, behavioral health challenges, mental health challenges, um, and or adverse childhood experiences that parents are, are dealing with and coping with still that might help that might contribute to some of the um, the challenges with parenting all right so definitely i gotta definitely reach out to alaska family youth uh alaska youth and family network or an organization like ours and, and finale payment services and we'll all right. do everything we can to get you connected to those resources i'm gonna have to have you guys back on because there's a lot more i want to talk about i appreciate you guys for joining me today Please join me next week for a conversation about the making of monsters, dehumanization, and the politics of demonization and violence. My thanks to Adeline Baxter for producing today's program and to our audio engineer, Tobin Shelby, for making it all work. For all of us at Line One, we appreciate you for taking the time to join us today. Until next time, I'm Prentice Pemberton. Have a great day, Alaska. Line One is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Learn more about Line One and listen online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media.